Hey friends, I'm Allie O'Grady and welcome to Thoughtful Human, the podcast. Today's conversation is all about body image and eating disorders. Whether you or someone you know experiences a clinical eating disorder, I think it's safe to say that we all have some complex thoughts and feelings when it comes to our bodies. This episode touches on both the everyday challenges related to body image, as well as a deeper discussion about clinical eating disorders and how we can create honest, safe spaces to talk about them with our loved ones. The research suggests that eating disorders actually have the second highest mortality rate of all mental illnesses, surpassed only by opioid use disorder. Needless to say, eating disorders are serious physical and mental health issues that we need to better understand and conversations that we need to navigate with sensitivity and compassion. To help us do this, I'm joined today by Dr. Margot Main. Dr. Main is a clinical psychologist who specialized in eating disorders and related issues for over 35 years. She's one of the founders of the National Eating Disorders Association, as well as an author and speaker in addition to her private clinical practice. In this episode, we discuss the differences between various types of eating disorders, language that may be helpful and harmful, effective ways to open up conversations, how and why eating disorders develop, relational cultural theory and Dr. Main's psychoeducational approach to treatment, as well as prevention and some practical tools for self-acceptance. Welcome. Thank you so much for being here. I am super excited to talk to you today about an issue that honestly feels so big and so constant for myself and pretty much everyone I know. I think we know there's really no escaping the influence and pressures of media and culture on our bodies. Mm -hmm. And we're served these rigid narratives and ideas from a really young age about what beauty is. Mm -hmm. But then There's this fleeting nature of how to achieve that and what that actually looks like. I know that you are so deep in this space. You have a book called Pursuing Perfection. I'm hoping you can kind of help us understand some of the history just surrounding body image and what you mean by the changing shape of womanhood. Great. Well, I tell you, Allie, you've already stimulated some thoughts for me. Um, When I first started thinking about treating eating disorders, I was working on my doctorate. Um, this is, you know, like almost 40 years ago. And uh, my mentors, my supervisors, the people who were ahead of me in the field of psychology, all told me uh, I shouldn't specialize in eating disorders because they were just a fad. Right. And, you know, I'd have nothing to do in a couple of years. So um, my partner that I practice with, um, who has practiced with me for not the 40 years, but what, almost 35, um, Every now and then he'll say to me, is this really just a fad? I, I had the sense when we first started eating, started seeing eating disorders and body image problems way back then, that this was like the shape of things to come for women. That our culture was just surrounding us with such horrible images and so much pressure in so many different dimensions of our lives that the body was going to be the answer to so many of those pressures and questions. So unfortunately, you know, they were... Uh, they were wrong and I was right <laughs> um, because eating disorders are so very, very serious, the impact they have on people's lives. But I, I, you know, when people say to me, when you meet people in casual situations and you tell them what you do uh, and they say, so um, 
why do people get eating disorders? And I'm thinking, how do people not get eating disorders? <laughs> yeah. So in terms of like what that changing, that's the first chapter of your book, changing the shape of womanhood. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? I can just think from my experience, what that looked like when I was younger from this kind of heroin chic friends era, nineties models to, you know, what it is today with social media and the Kardashians and this BBL craze. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. You know, in each era, there are different images. Like um, when I was growing up, it was, it was Twiggy and the models um, that came from, they initially came from the United Kingdom over here. And one of the things that happened in the United States back in the, I guess, 50s into 60s, uh, it was post-World War II and uh, the economy was very strong and things like magazines and advertising and the media were growing and getting stronger. Uh, and fashion was becoming a thing and fashion magazines were becoming a thing and the runway was becoming a thing. So these were all brand new things. And the fashion designers found that the clothes that they designed looked really good on paper but they didn't necessarily look so good on women's bodies. So when they saw Twiggy and the other models like her, the real waif-like models, they thought, this is great. We just have to have women who look like Twiggy, women who look like coat, coat hangers. And so that was like the beginning of all this. Um, so that was it early. And then it's just morphed from there. Like um, each 10 years, we have a different set of images and pressures on women. The body is kind of, it's kind of the currency for women in our culture. It's our, it's our, it's our gold standard. And there's a lot of pressure to have the best. Uh, we are living in a half changed world. Women have tremendous opportunities today. We are in all different kinds of professions and fields. And um, we are earning a lot of money and influence in the world, but we still are not equal to men and we don't have equal economic power to men. So I think a lot of women are pushed in the direction of maximizing their beauty, maximizing their body to offset the fact that in other ways they have less power, including economic. Yeah. It's not if this, then that it's, it's, you have to have both. And I feel like yes. the pressure is only increasing to both be achieving um, economically, professionally while maintaining this flawless appearance and somehow not age in the process. <laughs> yeah. The other thing is the technology involved in all of this. Like there's a lot of technology in the anti-aging business um, and the beauty business. Uh, so um, we never see a natural picture of anyone I mean, a lot of the fashion models will say that they don't even know, they don't even think they look like they look in the, in, in the pictures. So I know there's a big stereotype when we talk about body image and eating disorders specifically around um, adolescent girls. Um, but I know that that's shifting and that you do a lot of um, work around that. Can you tell us a little bit about how that demographic is changing? Yeah. Although I believe the the usual picture that comes up in people's minds uh, when they hear eating disorders is to think about like a high school or college age girl. And of course, it's usually a white girl and all that, which is also not true. Um, but eating disorders are not just in teenage girls and not just in white girls. Uh, what we see now is that the body image and disordered eating really range the whole age spectrum, as well as across gender, race, socioeconomic class, age, the whole thing. I first discovered that when I was uh, first treating eating disorders, 
I ran a program in a children's hospital. So we treated a lot of teenage girls and their families. And often I thought that maybe a family member, particularly the mom might also have an issue, but usually they were not willing to talk about that. They do whatever they could to help their kids get better, but they weren't gonna talk about their stuff. But you always kind of knew it was in the background. After, eh, you know, maybe about five to 10 years into my treating kids this age, and the kids had gotten better, gone off, I started getting calls from some of the moms uh, who would then tell me about their story and then actually come in for treatment themselves. So that's how it emerged into my consciousness, um, that it was the moms of some of my patients. And it made total sense to me because I had, I had thought that there was something else going on in these families anyway. Um, but I was amazed that they were always able to come through for their kids. So I, you know, I started treating the moms of these in these instances as well. And then more and more, I started to see adult women who were, who were just one by one starting to talk about their, their issues. Um, there was one woman who came to me who really tells the story well. She was in her early 40s when she came to me. She had a 12-year-old daughter and she was concerned that the daughter might develop an eating disorder because she had had an eating disorder from about that, about that same age. When she was 12, her parents put her on a diet. They brought her to Weight Watchers starting at the age of 12. So every week they were off to Weight Watchers. When you look at pictures from that time, and when she talks about that time, she knows that she wasn't fat. Her body was just changing the way a pre-adolescent body changes. Girls get a little bit fuller because they need some fat on them in order to go through puberty. So by the age of 12, her parents had her dieting. And when she went off to college, she developed anorexia, came home from college, much leaner, anorexic, and no one said a word. <laughs> On her own post-college, she was able to come out of the anorexia and then went on to get her master's degree and a second master's degree and have a career and have a family. But after her second child, she wasn't able to lose her the weight that she had gained. And she started really heavy duty eating disorder. So really she had had something since the age of 12, like the precursor with the dieting and all the body image focus in her family, full-blown anorexia in college, and then disordered eating for much of the time in between college and the time I saw her to the point where she was totally bulimic. Um, and uh, she started to realize that there was something really wrong with her. She didn't have anyone she felt she could talk to. She decided to go to her OBGYN and talk to him about it. She thought she might have an eating disorder, but she didn't really know enough about it. And there wasn't anybody she could talk to. So she went to her doctor uh, and she was prepared for what would happen in the doctor's office because she had lost significant weight in the previous year, probably 25-ish pounds. And she looked great, if you will, because <laughs> eating disorders aren't about how you look. Um, and uh, But she looked great. and the nurses all said to her, oh, great, you lost so much weight. How did you do it? Da, 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 da. She, was, she was prepared for that. She wasn't prepared for what the doctor said when he walked in. And this was a doctor she'd been to, you know, probably for 15 years or so, um, her OBGYN. She really trusted him. She thought she'd be able to talk to him. And the first thing he says to her when he walks in the office is, how does your husband like your new body? Mm. Yeah. So that's what women have been getting all this time. Like if you lose weight, no matter how you lose weight, it's great. And how, how do the men like it? How do other people like it? Not 
ooh, you lost a significant amount of weight. Are you okay? Let's talk about that. Nothing. Um, so she left the office that day feeling totally defeated, depressed, uh, frightened that she'd never be able to figure out what this was and what to do about it. And kind of giving up on the way home, she ended up a few days later getting back on the internet, finding my name. And, you know, I wasn't too far away from her. We started treatment. And here this woman is, you know, fully better, um, just an outpatient help. But that's, that's what happens to women. They're immersed in this culture that tells them not to trust their bodies, not to like their bodies, not to feed their bodies. So that brings up some interesting points. I mean, it's such a, there's such a broad spectrum around body image and eating disorders, and um, it's not always static. People are ebbing and flowing through, um, you know, different levels and intensity as they deal with these issues. Um, Can you help identify or explain some of the differences between something like body dysmorphia, disordered eating, or I know you, there's a category for kind of other unspecified eating disorders, clinical eating disorders, because I think a lot of people um, themselves and supporters of people who are struggling with food and eating disorders aren't real clear on, you know, where that line is. What is problematic? What is a phase? What is really dangerous? Can you help us understand that a little bit? Yeah, those are huge questions. So thank you for, for bringing up those issues. You know, when we say eating disorder, most people think of anorexia, uh, where wherein somebody loses a dramatic amount, amount of weight. If it's a woman, she usually has lost her menstrual status. Uh, not everyone has, but it's marked by a tremendous weight loss. So it's easier to see, and it's very dramatic. Uh, and you know, physicians, medical personnel, what they see in their textbooks when they when eating disorder comes up is that anorexic body, um, really skeletal. That is the least frequent eating disorder, however. (laughs) Um, The uh, most frequent eating disorder is actually binge eating disorder, wherein people don't lose weight. Um, They can be at any weight, but they have a disordered relationship with food in that they probably restrict and then binge. Um, Bulimia is also in um, in that category also. With bulimia, people, again, it might not be a weight problem, but they, they eat to the point of, of binging, to the point of then needing to purge via exercise, via laxatives, via self-induced vomiting. And binge eating disorder is just as serious as anorexia is. And then as you mentioned, there's this other category, unspecified or specified eating disorders. And that usually is a combination of some anorexic and bulimic behaviors. There's also atypical anorexia. In atypical anorexia, someone has all of the symptoms of anorexia. They are, um, they are very restricted in their intake. Their hormones and physical status um, are depressed the way it is when someone is restricting, but they may still be at a high weight. So as I said earlier, you can't tell by looking at someone whether they have an eating disorder. And you know, you raised, um, when do you know if it's disordered eating versus an eating disorder? <laughs> That's a tough one. I think um, the thing to watch for, and the thing I tell families when they come with that question is to watch for, for mood and emotional changes. If someone really has an eating disorder, there's going to be some emotional fluctuations also. Um, it won't just be that you know, they've lost five pounds or 10 pounds and 
they're still just doing everything the same way and their mood is the same and they feel good and they're not anxious, they're not depressed, but really look at their mood and have a sense of that. Um, when someone has an eating disorder and loses weight, so it's enough to make an, an impact on their physiology, it often will affect mood and, and the ability to think clearly, uh, remember, concentrate and all of that. So you look at those things a bit. You know, uh, way, way, way back, I remember um, saying to people, well, the difference between dieting and an eating disorder is when you diet, when you've lost the weight, you want to go off the diet. When you have an eating disorder, you never want to go off it. So that's kind of one very crude way <laughs> to distinguish. Um, people with eating disorders never give up the, the battle with it. It's never good enough. You've never controlled your intake enough. You've never lost enough weight. You never look good enough. It's a never ending cycle. Yeah. The not enough. <laughs> yeah. So I think for a lot of people, you know, with other health issues that we don't know why they might occur or how to, you know, prevent or cure them. I think a lot of people, when they look at eating disorders, um, the solution feels unbelievably simple, just eat or stop eating. Like, why can't you do it? Like, especially people with really severe eating disorders. I, I think there's a, a lot of frustration for yeah. friends and family where you almost want to shake someone and be like, we know how to fix this. Right. Yeah. But there's a real disconnect between the mental health issue and the, you know, literal issue at hand of eating. Can you help us understand just the complexity neuroscience psychology behind eating disorders and why people do it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the issue is why people do it. That's a really good question to start with. Uh, and one of the things you have to keep in the back of your mind as a treater, because we often also think, well, why don't they just stop? Um, you have to understand that that eating disorder symptom or, or range of symptoms is functioning in some important way in their life. It's not, and I often will say this to patients, particularly early on when we're first starting, you know, you're not crazy. This eating disorder isn't crazy. You're doing this because it does something for you that nothing else does. So we've got to figure out what it does for you. And then we've got to figure out other ways for you to get there. So for many people, um, the thing they talk about is control, that it's a way to control what's going on in their lives. Sometimes it's a way to feel better about themselves, feel like they are as good as other people or better than other people because they have a sense of inadequacy. Um, but there are many ways in which it's, it's going to do something for them. It might be a way to uh, show anger or show resistance to what's going on in the family. It's, it's sometimes a way of dealing with trauma. Uh, sometimes it's just all about the sadness of, of whatever is going on in their family. They, there might've been a death or a series of deaths and, and they're just really, really sad. And the, the eating disorder kind of distracts them from the sadness uh, because whatever the symptom is, it is very distracting. So that's the one thing to think about the function of the eating disorder. And another thing for me as a treater, and this might help some of the families who are listening to this, it took me a long time to understand that that those symptoms, whether it was the purging and the emptiness, whether it's whether it's the restricting and the hollowness, uh, whatever the symptom is, or the binging, that that is the thing that soothes that person. For me, being hungry is not soothing to me. Being hungry is like, I'm like, you know, ready to crawl up the wall if I'm hungry. Um, I don't do hunger well. But for my patients, those symptoms are the ways they have learned to self-soothe. 
So again, we have to find another way to self-soothe. Does that make sense? Absolutely. If we can get our heads around, you know, anything that makes any of us feel good in a moment of pain, then we have to understand that that is to some extent what someone is gaining from that experience. Yeah. I can say for me personally, I have, I self diagnose myself with, you know, just periods of disordered eating, particularly around grief. And I think to your point, there's a huge amount of control and distraction. This is something I can manage. This is something I can focus on uh, when everything else is feeling out of control and a weird sense of physical satisfaction. Like you were saying, it's it's hard for you to understand that um, that actually can feel comforting that to kind of mirror a internal emptiness with the physical emptiness and that that actually feels good in that moment and alternatively feels bad to feel full there feels like a a disconnect and then you mentioned this earlier then there's this whole social reinforcement piece where you step (laughs) on the road and everyone's like you're glowing you look great (laughs) and you're like wow I'm dead inside um there's this simultaneous feeling of like this kind of very ill delight that, you know, this is working. There are results, you know, there is some thing to some physical manifestation of my pain. Right. And then this also despair that no one notices how much you're struggling. And on the other end is, is reinforcing that in a positive way. So it's, it's really interesting and it's really powerful. And, you know, for me has been brief, but recurring and really intense moments of pain in my life. And, you know, I have so much empathy on all sides as people struggle with these conversations, because knowing the amount of control that you want in those moments, I can tell you how much I pushed back or was defensive Mm -hmm. or withdrew from anybody who wanted to talk to me about that in the moment. So I'm hoping, you know, from your practice and your research that you can help us start to understand some effective ways just to open up conversations around the subject. I think that's, uh, you know, the million dollar question. How do you help someone to want help? Because the eating disorder is really working for them. And, you know, if they're really steeped in it, it's very scary to think about giving up you know, for many people, but not all, it develops in adolescence. And that's the time our personalities are forming, our identity is forming. And so it can really be a shape, you know, put really a container around everything about us emotionally. Uh, so to give it up is is absolutely frightening. Um, so rather than, you know, just try to yanking trying to yank the eating disorder away from the person to try to help them to understand it as a treater that works as a family member. um, That's not really your job. Your job is to help them to express things emotionally, to make them feel safe and, and that kind of thing. But, um, you know, sometimes when people are referred to us, they are already in a dangerous point with the eating disorder. And so you have to kind of take away some control. They might have to be in a hospital or in a program Um, They might need to, like, you might need to push the physical aspects of recovery sooner because they're in kind of dangerous territory. Other times they're not quite so dangerous, so you can go a little bit slower. Um, I prefer to go slower. I prefer to go slower so that the person can have some some control over things. Um, For example, um, 
often when someone comes to me because I'm an expert, if you will, uh, in eating disorders, lots of times they've been in other treatment that hasn't really completely helped them. Maybe it did for a while, but it fell apart or maybe it never did. So one of the things I do a lot of is, is asking them, you know, what helped and what didn't help in the previous treatment. And I also will try to get them to figure out what is it that they would like to work on first, rather than my saying, like, we've got to do this, 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 and this. You've got 10 problems. Let's start here. Uh, instead, to have that be a joint discussion. I think that really is much better for, for the patient or client, if you will. Sometimes you can't do that. Sometimes a person is already pretty out of control. But the more you can involve them in that, and the more you can help them to understand that this is this is not just crazy behavior. This is this is really problematic behavior for a reason, and we have to we have to solve that reason. People with eating disorders, um, in general, have so much shame. It's really embarrassing to not be able to control your food intake, whatever dimension it is, whether it's not eating enough, whether it's eating too much, whether it's purging, whatever it is, uh, it's really a very very, very demoralizing to have to admit that to other people. And, you know, you're not perfect if you can't handle these aspects of life, these basic aspects of life, but the shame that they feel. And sometimes treatment is shaming too. So as a treater, that's one of the things I think about. Uh, I think about, yes, I'm nervous about their condition. <laughs> yes, I need them to start changing their behavior so that they'll be out of danger but I can't put too much pressure on them too fast because that's so shaming. So I can't just ask them about their symptoms. Um, you know, my first comments can't be, well, did you have your, your snack every day? That can't be my first question. <laughs> um, yeah. So it's, it's a matter of, you know, trying to put all the pieces together and knowing and remembering that the person coming to you or the person you're concerned about has a lot of feelings of inadequacy and your job is not to add to them. Yeah. And not coming at it with this problem solving lens from, from a family and friend perspective. You know, I think that's, I would equate it to substance addiction to a certain extent where we're like, we just want to take away the drug. Well, the drug in this case, food or lack thereof is a means to an end. And, you know, we have to just talk about the pain, the stressors and whatever is leading anyone to soothe in the first place. And, you know, unlike addiction, I was reading this in some of, in some of your articles, um, you mentioned the, um, unique part about eating disorders. You can't just abstain from <laughs> right. recovery. And, um, it's, there's no, not engaging with food. We all engage with food. We have to, and moreover, you know, talking about moms and feeding kids and meal planning and just how integral it is, you know, socially and everywhere we go, that it's just such a, a constant struggle for people. Yeah. But can you yeah. tell us a little bit about, I know one of your approaches is this kind of psychoeducational approach and relational cultural theory. Can you talk to us a little bit about that and what you actually find helpful for people as they enter recovery? Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot there. Um, when you were speaking before about um, about an approach in treatment and all of that, I was thinking about RCT, relational cultural theory. And uh, let me back up and just say that in the treatment of eating disorders today, there's a lot of what I call alphabet soup, um, CBT, DBT, ECT, um, EBT, right. EBT, FBT. 
every, everything tea. <laughs> There's a lot of tea at the end of it. Um, and uh, so I've been like, I'm not one of the alphabet soup people, but relational cultural theory also can be talked about as RCT. <laughs> um, and RCT, relational cultural theory, we believe the relationships are what heals people. And that an eating disorder usually begins uh, because of a breakdown in relationships, maybe a, a narcissistic injury or some other disappointment or series of disappointments. And the person starts to manipulate their relationship with food um, as a way of dealing with the disconnection with people. But what they really want is the relationship with a person. But the, the disconnection takes over and they develop this connection with food. So the food becomes a substitute for real relational possibilities. And when you're in therapy with a good therapist, you really work on the relationship and the person might not even be versed in RCT. Sometimes when I present at training conferences and I'll be talking about RCT, sometimes afterwards a therapist will come up to me and they'll say, you know, that's exactly what I do, but I didn't know I did that. <laughs> um, so uh, it is a, it's a model of treating people where you really are trying to partner with them. When I said before, you know, to kind of find what they want, want as their goals and then to partner together and you share the responsibility for the treatment versus you as the treater are in charge. There's a parallel between the medical model, which is kind of power over in the medical model, the doctor has all, all the control and doctors will tell you what to do, not necessarily explaining why you need to do it that way. It's really power um, and it's you do it and this is the only way to do it. So power over is one way of treating people. And the e-disorder field does a lot of that, but it's not really good treatment. Or there's power with, which is what relational cultural theory is. It is working together with the person, lending your own ego to them, helping them to figure out what they want to do and how they want to do it, being very empathic with them. And there's a concept in RCT that I really like. It's called fluid expertise. And especially with people who have been in treatment before or they've got a long-standing eating disorder, uh, I want to remind you that a lot of people who come to us are very smart people. <laughs> They're, they really are. And they know a lot about themselves. They may not be able to access it all the time, but they do know, know themselves. Fluid expertise means that both the treater and the treated share expertise. So one of the things I do, which is kind of an example, and this is something I did before I knew the term, because I'm an expert, lots of times people come to me, maybe sent by somebody else. Um, I'm an expert, I'm gonna fix them. So you're gonna fix me, right? I talk about fluid expertise, that I am the expert about eating disorders, but they're the expert about themselves. And they're the expert about what has helped them in the past, what hasn't helped them in the past. And I wanna know about that. And together we can have fluid expertise. Sometimes they'll be listening more to me, sometimes I'll be listening more to them. And that's what's gonna work for them. And I think that's really empowering. And that is what will help a person to move forward, to feel respected, to feel like I can, I can be, I can help to shape this recovery and it can be right for me versus just doing, just following directions from someone else that may or may not fit. Yeah. And a good way to gauge, you know, anyone's readiness in changing their behavior or their lifestyle. You know, we can talk a lot at people about health and recovery. Um, but if that's not something they in and of themselves want or are ready to pursue, 
there really does have to be a give and take. Do you have just, I mean, I can only imagine the number of patients you've seen over the years and, you know, with varying levels of openness to these conversations and moving in a healthier direction. Do you have any just literal words, questions to help people start to think about those conversations with their loved ones? Well, I think some of the things you and I are talking about, just the being careful to not judge the person and to not simplify their problems. And to remember, if this really smart, really lovely person in front of me is doing this to themselves, like there's got to be a lot of reasons for that. Um, It's, you know, it's not simple. So to, to back up and slow down and remind yourself that this person is a person, number one, and deserves your respect and your understanding, even if you're really worried about them and, and concerned about what they're doing. So to try to slow the whole thing down and to try to really hear the person, not just the symptoms. I think what happens lots of times with family members is they get so caught up in the did she lose weight this week? Did she gain weight this week? Did she, is she purging more? Is she purging less? Is she still exercising so much? There are so many behaviors to keep track of. <laughs> and sometimes treaters get really all caught up in that. And I don't mean that we ignore it, but that has to not be the focus. Um, the focus has to be helping the person feel more, more whole inside, uh, more, um, more able to accept their own imperfections and all of that. And and that's, if we can start there, then we can get a lot of other things done. But too often clinicians and I think family members can come across in a shaming, blaming kind of way. So it's a good reminder to parents and to other loved ones. If you are so wanting someone else to change a behavior that's really powerful in them, how about you trying to change a behavior? Um, you know, every now and then I will, uh, you know, I don't swear a lot, but I swear a little and every now and then I'll, I'll try to give up swearing. And it's really hard to do, you know, if it's just part of your vocabulary, it's hard to do. So, you know, I think every now and then we all need to give up something and remember how hard it is. That's also something I explain to my patients. Every time we do something, no matter what it is, whether it's talking to you about this whether it's um, riding a bicycle, whether it's taking a walk, everything we do, each time we do it, it lays down a behavioral, a neurobehavioral pathway in our brain. So the pathway gets bigger and bigger, broader and broader, denser and denser each time we do something. So something that you do every day. Um, I always use the example of brushing my teeth. My dad was a dentist, so brushing your teeth was a big deal. You know, you brushed your teeth. You didn't do anything until you brushed your teeth. Um, so I can't leave the house unless I brushed my teeth. <laughs> um, and uh, so that's one of my neural behavioral pathways that I would not be able to change. It's like it is a super highway with 20 lanes and there's nothing else around. And for my patients, their eating disorder are those super highways. And, it, and to ask them to change, we have to start another neurobehavioral pathway that is that doesn't exist right now. And that's a big job. Uh, so it can be done. And But talking about it and talking about, we've got to create a new neurobehavioral pathway for you um, helps. And when I explain that to my patients, they often will talk to their loved ones, you know, their husband or their parents say, I'm carving a new neurobehavioral pathway right now. It's not going to be immediate. <laughs> and it helps a little bit. Because, you know, you mentioned neuroscience before, 
we certainly know a lot more about the brain than we did before. And that is one of the things we know that we can change. Um, the brain is very, very plastic, but change doesn't happen just like that. It's also for people who like control, it's a nice idea. We're like, oh, good. Yeah, we can control the carving out of this new yeah, thing. Yeah. And it, yeah, it's a new thing to control. You give a lot of really inspiring statistics um, as part of, I think, what you call your psychoeducational approach. Can you share some of those that that women you know, often help shift their, their perspective on their bodies? Yeah, one of the things I do a lot with my adult patients is to talk about um, women's bodies and um, what they need to be physically in order to be healthy. Because we have, as we've talked about, a lot of misconceptions about that. So yeah, I do a lot of psychoeducation because especially working with, you know, kids who are older, not little kids, um, adolescents, uh, young adults, and the many adult patients I have, you know, I want them to, I don't want to treat them like children <laughs> that I'm telling them what to do all the time without explaining why. So some of what we're going to talk about right now is material that I learned once I started treating um, adult women with eating disorders. It's not something I knew before. It's not something I learned in school. It is some of the facts about women's bodies. This part of my um, psychoeducation with my patients, I call Mother Nature, Women's Bodies and Survival. Women's bodies are hardwired to survive and they're hardwired to respond to starvation and be able to survive it. So before puberty, a girl's body is about 12% body fat. But um, to go through puberty, the fat cells have to multiply to be about 17%. And that gets to them to the point where they can menstruate and ovulate. A mature woman will have about 22% body fat. That's enough energy for an ovulating female to survive famine for nine months. So there we have it, that women need more fat on their bodies so that they can survive for nine months. Now, what else needs to survive for nine months? <laughs> it's just so amazing that you know, it's an example of our bodies know what they need to do to survive and to help the human race survive. And women gain fat first, like in their breasts and their buttocks and places like that, but that might be irritating to a lot of women. But I explained to my patients, that's to, to respond to and protect our fertility and our reproductive and feeding organs. Now, this fact is one that I think is really, really cool. In a famine, only 10% of women die, but half of the men will die. So we need more fat on our bodies in order to continue this human race. And also it allows us to survive. We have a longer staying power if we are in a famine. But then we get to um, the issues around menopause. And that's one of the, when we talk about, I'm working with a lot of adult women now, uh, lots of them, they might've had some disordered eating when they were younger, but it comes back full force when they're going through menopause because the feeling of loss of control of their bodies, things begin to change. And also because menopause is associated with some weight gain. The average woman gains about eight to 12 pounds and metabolism slows down probably 15 to 20%. So some women will, as they are approaching menopause, start to restrict their intake and end up developing an eating disorder. Other women, it may rekindle an old eating disorder. But the weight gain uh, often also is in their middle. And that's because in the midriff there, those cells can produce some fat and the fat will help to offset the loss of estrogen 
from the ovaries as the ovaries begin to shut down. So that protective fat around their middles is really to help our bodies tolerate the impact of, of um, menopause and be able to uh, protect our bones. Because if you have some estrogen being produced by the fat in your body, then um, you won't lose it as much from the, you won't miss it as much when the ovaries begin to shut down. And the last factor in this is that moderate weight gain is actually protective for women at midlife. Um, those women who gain weight at midlife have a better life expectancy later. So those are really, really important things. And I tell you, one woman that I'd started treatment with, she was in her 70s when she came to me. And she'd had some disordered eating from time to time in her life. And each time, similar to what we were talking about before, when it happened, it was in response to some trauma and some loss, real loss, real trauma. And so she would lose some weight and she would, that would kind of ground her. And then, you know, eventually she would come out of it. So she's in her seventies. It happens again. And um, her, her PCP was smart enough to refer her to me for some, some help because when you're in your seventies and you lose weight, it has a bigger impact on your body for our older people who are dieting, restricting, developing eating disorders, or going back to an eating disorder. It's really dangerous. Um, so it was good that she came to me. So the first week or two, I went through some of that material with her. And the next week she came in and she stood like right as she came in the office. And um, she said, I used to see my middle as a spare tire. And now I see it as my life preserver. And she had her, her hand right on her, um, on her tummy. It was just so wonderful. So it's no longer a spare tire. It's her life preserver. Yeah, it's this idea of shifting us from our, our body image to our body function. Yes, yeah. And a lot of our body functions are to protect us. Yeah, but it's our friend and not not yeah. the enemy. Yeah. Thank you for sharing those. That's really powerful. Yeah. And I think a helpful way to, to shift some of those negative thoughts or at least start to shift. Backing up to, again, just this, toolkit that we're trying to help people build. So I think you mentioned, you know, that we have such a tendency to monitor the behavior. What can we do as supporters, family members, friends to start these conversations with the baseline of caring and curiosity about the actual emotional experience? Like what are some initial questions that you are actually asking your patients to start to get at that? Well, what you just said is amazing. Emotional experience, to talk about the emotional experience instead of, did you eat today? How are you doing today? How was school today? What's happening? How's that relationship going you're struggling with? To get them talking about stuff, the stuff that's happening in their lives, instead of zeroing in on, did you eat or did you throw up yet today? You know, I've, I've literally been with families when they haven't seen their child or loved one in a while because the person's in the hospital or whatever. Um, the first thing they ask them is, did you throw up instead of, hi, how are you? Uh, so um, just to get them relating emotionally and for the parents to start to relate emotionally too. Um, sometimes part of why the kid is having a hard time is that there isn't a lot of good emotional modeling in the family. Sometimes there is, sometimes there isn't, but this is a time to kind of look at that again. How do I model my emotional expression? Am I, am I talking about my feelings enough? Am I talking about them too much so that there's no room for anybody else here? Uh, 
but what can I do as a model to talk about difficult things? You know, many of the people that develop eating disorders are such perfectionists. Um, so it would be good for parents and loved ones to start looking at their own perfectionism. Like, how do I hold myself to impossible standards? I want her to stop doing that, but how do I do that? Um, what do I need to change in my life? So to kind of look at your life in parallel and see, you know, for instance, it would not be unusual for parents or other people in this person's life to also be dieting. <laughs> so to look at that, what is my relationship to food and to my body like? What, where are my struggles? And what do I need to do about mine? So that's one place to start. Another place to start is to think about how, how well you express emotions. And that doesn't mean that you unload all of your feelings on this person, but that you are expressing them in some ways adaptively to other people and not loading them all on that one person. Lots of times the person who develops an eating disorder in the family is the one who, who does take care of other people quite a bit. And that's not, that's not helpful. So you don't want them to be in that role. Uh, but more emotional expression and more look at your own self in terms of your relationship to food, weight, and body image. What are you modeling? Because um, everyone is swimming in this really dangerous water of our culture. I keep thinking of it in the parallels with addiction, where yeah. when we are trying to talk with people about this, how do you create an environment where people can be honest and still feel safe? Because it can feel like survival for people. Mm -hmm. Like if they are honest, someone's going to take away this thing from me that is allowing me to survive, whether that's a drug, whether that's an eating disorder. So almost, it seems I might be out of line here, but, um, laying some kind of groundwork of like, I'm, I'm not trying to change your behavior today. You know, even some acknowledgement of it's okay. If you don't eat today, I'm not here to monitor your behavior. Are you open to a conversation about this today or tomorrow? Or can I keep checking back in with you about how this is going versus you know, I think what feels really threatening to people is like, if I am honest about this, then today right now is when I have to start changing. And I think a lot of people are not ready to do that yeah. in any initial yeah. conversation. And there doesn't seem to be this space to say anything otherwise. Yeah. And I think, you know, people are very, very rightfully so scared of eating disorders. Um, they can be extremely serious. Uh, they do, they are associated with the highest mortality rate uh, in mental health diagnoses next to opioid addiction. Um, it used to be that eating disorders were first, but now that we have so much opioid addiction, that's first. Um, so you tell a family that they have an eating disorder in the midst and they are really, really terrified, but not all of them are at that point. You know, when I said earlier, like sometimes, you know, sometimes we do have to go fast and sometimes you can go slower. I think that parents have to be really, really careful that they don't become, you know, the police with their kid. And it's helpful to have treatment, treatment resources, so that your loved one can be working with a dietitian or with a doctor or with a therapist about this stuff. And you as their friend or their parent or their sister or their brother are not in charge of all that. What you're in charge of is your relationship with them and showing them love and, and, and respect and believing in them. When I 
was doing my dissertation, I chose to do interviews with people who had recovered from eating disorders. And um, it's a long time ago. Literally, nobody that I interviewed felt that their treatment, their formal treatment had helped them. <laughs> now, this is a long, long time ago. I, I know it would be different today. But this was, you know, when people were getting treatment, might it might have been only hospital treatment, not much outpatient care, um, and nobody really specialized in it. So, but none of the patients felt that their treatment helped them. What helped them was relationships. What helped them was um, sometimes parents, but more likely friends, so that they didn't feel so alone. Yeah. The the common answer I get when I asked when I asked during that research time and when I ask today. Um, what helped you to get better? Um, I get three answers. They might say to me, well, you believed in me. They usually say, I didn't feel alone. And I felt I could do it finally. So it's, it's a matter of giving that person some ego strength and some personal strength and some lending your ego to them, lending your love to them so that they feel less alone and less judged yeah. and, and able Instead of, I think a lot of times people feel that they can't change the eating disorder. It's the only good thing about them. They don't want to change it. And also that they can't. Yeah. The more conversations I have about addressing sensitive subjects like this, the more it seems that the person who wants to support almost needs to have this whole other conversation with themselves or with a therapist or another outside party to really like there's two experiences happening here, right? Someone who's learned about a loved one, you have to have all of your own discomfort with whatever the actual issue is, fears, your frustration, all of that, which is super valid and process that and then intentionally approach a conversation with the focus on someone else's mentality, not bulldozing in here with your own agenda and fears. So I think it's, yeah, I think it's really interesting how we can help try to prepare to do that and be more effective supporters so that people don't feel safe to have these conversations. Well, you know, you mentioned substance abuse earlier in the 12-step movement, Al-Anon, the program for parents and families is a very, very important part of the whole spectrum of, of um, services because people get into these roles of um, that are not healthy and kind of taking, trying to take over the symptoms, taking over, and that never, ever works, whether it's an eating disorder or substance abuse. So I think there's something to, to borrow from that. Certainly, if particularly if parents can go to a parent support group or something like that, and that's, you know, if you live in an area where there are such services, lots of people don't have any eating disorder programs around them. The idea of an eating disorder support group for families or friends just is totally abstract, but there's more and more available on the internet. And then you also just need to like look in your own, in your own Rolodex, if you will, <laughs> on your own um, cell phone to see who do you have in that address book. Um, you probably have some friends that you could go to and talk about honestly about these things. And it really is important to do that. Lots of times families want the loved one to go for treatment, but they're not going to go well, maybe you need to go. And if you can't go, maybe you need to find some other way to get help. Yeah. And I think some of the people in the media who've come out in recent years talking more about this are so powerful for people who 
who do have this shame and embarrassment around it to have role models who are really strong, really beautiful, really intelligent people to say, look, this is not to negate any of those things. It's both. And there's, there doesn't need to be this shame associated with it. That was one of the um, really, you know, encouraging things to read in your work is just how many women do overcome what is in a lifelong decade over decade. um, that that is possible. As I mentioned, that woman who so stimulated my thinking about adult eating disorders, and really, she was the reason I wrote um, my first book about adult women. Um, And uh, she really had an eating disorder from about the age of 12. um, Till her, when she came to me, she was in her early 40s. And we only did outpatient treatment. Uh, That's another thing that happens for adults. They don't have a chance necessarily to go away for treatment the way younger people might. Um, And uh, so it was all outpatient, but she is, you know, she's a good amount of time has gone by. She's completely asymptomatic. She doesn't go backwards with her symptoms. She's had a lot of other life stressors and she can kind of confront them head on. She does every now and then come back to me when there's something new in her life and it's a way for her to not delve back into the eating disorder. She's got me as a resource. And um, like, that's one example of, you could be really, really in the height of an eating disorder and still get better at, at midlife. Yeah, and maybe broadening this idea too of what better means. I've heard a lot of buzz in recent years around like body neutrality, which to me has felt so much more realistic than body positivity. I mean, of course, like I, those feel really positive and make me feel empowered and strong, but in acceptance of, you don't have to necessarily love every part of your body and you still think these thoughts and that they can just become less intense or pervasive and don't need to be as focal in your life that you can reach some sort of neutral ground and acceptance. And maybe that is hugely successful. Yeah, no, that's a direction that we take in therapy to help them to see what their body does for them, not what it doesn't do. You know, it doesn't look perfect. It doesn't do this, it doesn't do that. But what does it do? Like, what have you done so far today? that you couldn't do if you didn't have a body that functioned and did things. And one of the things I often talk about with patients um, is look at what your body is doing every day, despite how, how you have mistreated it, <laughs> what a bum rap it's gotten for a long time. And it still is working for you. We can sit here. You can have a really good conversation with me. You can follow what I'm saying. You got here, you're able to drive, you're able to do this, that, and the other. Look at what your body does. Um, you were able to go swimming today. Didn't that feel good? Uh, I don't care if you don't like how you look in your bathing suit. <laughs> Nobody really likes how they look in a bathing suit, right? Yeah. But uh, to think about what you can enjoy in life, not not just what you don't have in terms of body image. Yeah, that's really interesting. That just made me think of my body as like my partner, like as if I'm in a in an abusive relationship with my own body. Like I've been berating my own body my whole life and my body's still showing up for me, you know, like, cause I'm not, haven't been bringing nearly as much to the table. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I like to think of your body as an instrument, not an ornament. Mm-hmm. It's the instrument of your life, but that's a really good set of insights, Allie. So when we talk about the origins of this and, and looking forward, you know, what does, 
what does prevention look like? What does early intervention look like? I know a huge question that a lot of my friends have right now who have young kids is, you know, how can we be talking about body image and food from a young age? Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the things from, from, from day one is to not ever talk about dieting, not to ever talk about restricting, not to ever label foods as good or bad. Uh, And that might seem like, um, kind of silly to talk about, but it's really, really important. We start immersing children in diet culture and weight stigma at very early ages. It's kind of just, it's all around them. And so we have to watch what we do and say. And, um, you know, we all hear about DEI, diversity, equality, and inclusion, you know, in terms of race relationships and all of that kind of thing. Well, we also have to do that with body relationships um, that we have to really help kids to start seeing their bodies and other people's bodies okay as is and never ever make fun of anybody because they um you know they're short or they're tall or they're fat or they're skinny or they have a handicap or whatever it is to not make fun of anyone's body ever and to have a lot of empathy about people's bodies so that's stuff you can just do from the very beginning and the food stuff is all is a little bit difficult today because there is so much um incorrect information about food out there. And I think parents sometimes are worried about a kid maybe developing an eating disorder or maybe becoming, if you will, fat and be so worried about that so that sometimes they don't trust the kid's appetite. Um, and so trying to find ways to make peace with your child's appetite because they may not like the same things you like and um, forcing children to eat things that they don't like is never ever a good thing. Um, and it can make things pretty toxic. It can make your relationship kind of toxic and also can become a way of, you know, then the kid starts, well, I'm not going to eat because I don't want to eat those things. Um, but to, you know, to respect their appetites and try to build in some other foods over time, but not to push them all the time. Uh, mm-hmm. It's it's hard. But again, as I said before, the adults need to be working on their own body image and relationship with food and be sure that you aren't modeling something horrible. So many of my um, patients will tell me if I, if I ask them pointed questions, they'll tell me, but they won't otherwise bring it up um, that their mothers never sat down and ate lunch with them or ate dinner with them. I have a lot of patients who say, well, my mother never sits down and eats. So that's a great role model. (laughs) If the mother never sits down to eat, Um, What is that saying about her relationship with food, her ability to feed her body? um, And also, what does it say about a woman um, not being able to take care of herself? For my adult patients with eating disorders, they all take care of their families really, really well. They don't take care of themselves. And that's another whole challenge in recovery for adults with eating disorders Mothers are usually the ones who are in charge of eating for the whole family. And there's a lot involved in that. You know, you have to plan, you have to shop, you have to, you have to put the food away. You have to then get the food out. You have to make the food. You have to clean up after making the food. Um, You have to change recipes when it doesn't come out so well. Um, You have to do a lot of innovation. It's a lot of work. And um, that's a lot for somebody who doesn't have an eating disorder. But if it's someone who does have an eating disorder and she's trying to feed her family, it's really a huge, huge um, problem. A lot of my patients are using things, you know, the um, meals that you can order uh, and they're kind of half made and then you finish making them. Um, and there's a lot of national 
companies that do that. Um, meals delivered to your door. I don't mean like Uber Eats, but you know, subscription meal plans and all that. Um, but I think for parents to be thinking about this is a really good thing. Yeah, I can tell you something that's incentivizing for me too is again, getting out of this body image and thinking about it in terms of the opportunity cost of the just pure amount of brain power and emotional yeah. labor. That to me is motivating to be like, I can't believe how much I'm allowing my mind to focus on this thing yeah. when I could be yeah. other people learning, showing up in my work differently. I often ask at my first appointment with patients, um, what is the percentage of your daily thoughts that is devoted to weight, food, eating, and exercise? And that's kind of a wake-up call because just what you said, like, um, I realize <laughs> how much. And I've had patients say, well, it's the first thing I think about when I wake up in the morning. I think about it all day until I go to bed at night. Um, it's often that kind of answer. It's never like 10% or something that might seem reasonable. Yeah, it's really alarming. Maybe yes. a, a focus too on like just more intention of how you do want to spend your mental energy. And I imagine that's a big part of the CBT. Once you have the awareness of those thoughts coming in, how you right. redirect those to whatever is on your list of things that you really want to be prioritizing. Yeah, like just my asking the question about what percentage of your thoughts is devoted to this, that's helped some patients to, it's kind of a wake up call. Oh my goodness, I never really thought about it that way. That's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, you asked about other prevention programs. Um, there is a lot being done in prevention. Um, there isn't a lot of money available, um, but there is a lot of good stuff being done. And um, there is evidence that some of these um, targeted prevention programs actually do work. So there is a program called the Body Project, and it's it was first developed for college students, um, and now it's also used with high school students. And it's uh, you know it's a it's a curriculum. Um, people are trained to lead these classes and to help um, the students involved uh, to understand that the things that affect body image and relationship with food and all of that. And it has really good outcomes. So it's not targeted to eating disorder people, it's targeted to the general population and it has served a preventive measure for a lot of people. So that's one example. And there are more and more of things like that happening. And we do, you know, we do see they're having some positive impact. What I do wanna mention, which is important is that there is not enough money for research in the field of eating disorders. Um, and I'm a clinician, I'm not a researcher, so there's, I'm not gonna get anything from this. Uh, but um, NIMH, the National Institute of Mental Health, um, the last time these statistics were available, I think it was from either the year 2015 or 2017. I think it was published in 2017, but the numbers are from 2015. The um, amount of money for federally funded research for eating disorders was less than a dollar per life affected. It was um, 73 cents per person. For autism, it was about $59 per person. And for schizophrenia, it was $87 per person. So you can see how like schizophrenia needs research, autism needs research, but eating disorders need research too. And we get less than a dollar per person affected. 
that's, you know, that's going to get us nowhere. So in the advocacy that's being done by the National Eating Disorders Association and the Eating Disorder Coalition for um, Research Policy and Action and Project Heal and a lot of other groups, that is the kind of thing we're working on to try to get more money for research and get some more examples of programs that work and then also get those launched into like all public schools. So we have a long way to go, but there's things we can do. We'll definitely include links for anyone who's interested in donating or learning more about that. You didn't mention NADA, which I'd love to just give you the opportunity to plug. Um, You're a founder and senior advisor for the organization. Can you tell us just a little bit about the organization and what it offers people? Yeah, National Eating Disorders Association is a really important organization. Um, It was initially called Eating Disorders Awareness and Prevention. um, And then we changed the name, uh, uh, you know, about 20 years or so ago. Um, And what happened as we grew um, and became the National Eating Disorders Association is that other, some of the other smaller regional and small national groups kind of came in into this one bigger organization that we call NIDA. Um, but it's the National Eating Disorders Association. And um, NIDA uh, does a lot of education. Um, it actually does have some money for research projects. Uh, they raise money every year for research and then um, find, the, find some good programs to give it to. They sponsor uh, Eating Disorders Awareness Week, which is the last week of February every year. And this year it starts on February 27th and goes to March 5th. And the theme this year is it's time for change. Every year they have a different theme, but it's time for change. So they have this week that's organized around educating people about eating disorders. And then there's other things throughout the year. Uh, There is a no diet day and there's a body acceptance week. That's in October. Uh, The no diet day is sometime in May and other things throughout the year where they try to educate people. And the no diet day um, and body acceptance, those are really, really important things. So it doesn't say eating disorder on it, but these are things that contribute to eating disorders. If we're dieting all the time, we're going to have more eating disorders. If we're not working on accepting our bodies and making peace with our bodies, we're going to have more eating disorders. So all of their programs are really geared to preventing eating disorders and uh, helping everyone to have peace with their bodies. So they do a lot of really, really good things and and support some of the other organizations that are also doing important work. Um, And uh, it's been around for a while. Amazing. So to finish up here, can you tell us a couple, if you had, if someone only hears this part of the episode and they're really struggling today themselves or with a loved one who's facing an eating disorder, what would you recommend as like your three starting points for people? So that's a big question. Um, First of all, I would say, educate yourself, read some books, uh, go to the National Eating Disorders Association web pages, see what resources are there because they have resources for just about everybody. You know, if you're a high school coach or a college coach, there's resources on their website for you. Um, If you're a teacher, whatever, parent, whatever, there's lots of resources. So to start off, get some resources and information for yourself. That's the first step. And also to start thinking about where does food and weight and body image and exercise and all of that, where does that fit in my life? Am I struggling with something too? And I need to make peace with that before I can help my loved one. The third thing is to really be um, non-judgmental with that person. 
And, you know, to backtrack to what you and I were talking about before, that the eating disorder happens because it works. It has a function. It does a job for this person. And the job might be to distract them from their pain. It might be to numb their pain. It might be to give them a sense of control when everything else seems to be spinning out of control. Um, it might give them something that they feel good about when they don't feel good about any other aspect of themselves or their lives. It has a function. So don't, don't belittle that. Try to understand that this is, is happening for a reason and you have to support that person, help that person get some help so that they can figure out what they can do to replace um, the function that the eating disorder takes. And it doesn't happen like that. It's really, it's really a long-term project. Nothing happens quickly in recovery. But um, I want people to know that recovery is possible. And it's never perfect, but it really is possible. There's, you mentioned substance abuse before. There's a phrase in substance abuse, um, progress, not perfection. And that should help hold true in eating disorder work also. So the last thought is you look at this person as needing to make progress and not to be perfect. I love the intro to pursuing perfection where you said to my brave patients who decide it's never too late to break out of the prison of perfectionism and make peace with their bodies. Yeah, so it is a prison. And um, I just want to say thank you so much for um, the work that you do on a one-on-one -on -one basis and to just try to change the conversation around this subject. We are so grateful and thank you for sharing it with our community. Allie, I loved talking with you. I loved your questions. I love your spirit. And I know we're going to help a lot of people through this conversation. So I'm happy to come back sometime in the future if it would help. Amazing. Thank you so much. Take care, Allie. For more information on eating disorders and how to support someone in your life, visit the National Eating Disorders Association's website at www.nationaleatingdisorders.org. You can also call or text the NADA helpline at 800-931-2237. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Thoughtful Human. If you'd like to follow along on our journey or check out our products, you can visit our website at thoughtfulhuman.co or find us on all socials at Thoughtful Human. And of course, if you found this episode useful in any way, we'd so appreciate a review to help us reach more people who might need it. And finally, if you or a loved one needs access to a month of free therapy, you can visit betterhelp.com slash thoughtfulhuman.